All right. So this week we are finishing up chapter 5 of Matthew. So throughout this chapter, Jesus has been really constructing a logical train or a logic statement. It started with the question of how do Jesus and the law coexist? How do they balance each other out? Is the law still in play now that Jesus is here? That's the question he opened with. He answers this question by saying yes. The law is still valid. He has not come to get rid of the law or abolish it, but rather to fulfill it. Okay. And then he goes on to say that if we are to see the kingdom of God, that we have to have righteousness greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Okay. So now, today, we get to the final crux of this argument. We get to the main question of how Jesus and the law are meant to interact in our lives today. So I will go ahead and start reading. Our passage today is Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 43. You have heard it said, you must love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who harass you, so that you will be acting as the children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good, and sends rain to both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? For even the tax collectors do the same. If you, excuse me, if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so you must be complete. Now, weird, I don't know if confession time, but it's a weird thing. The Jesus we have preserved in the Gospels, the words we have preserved, makes Jesus sound kind of annoying at times. And by this I mean the Jesus we have in the Gospels hardly ever gives a simple, straightforward answer. Never gives a simple yes or no, or never gives a very tight, concise answer. Now, I have to wonder if Jesus was like this all the time. Like, when they asked Jesus what he wanted for dinner, did he wax on some philosophical story about all the fish in the sea just to say he wanted trout for dinner? You know, like, is that what he was like all the time? Or is that just what we have preserved because that type of material is good teaching material? We don't know. I hope it's not the first one because that would just be insufferable at times. But this section is, to me, one of the paramount examples of Jesus on display here. He starts this thesis, this idea, way, way back in verse 17, when he says, don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so if you have this little conversation with Jesus, this is kind of how it's gone so far. Like, okay, Jesus, what does that mean? Well, it means that the law is just the first step. You know, you have to have the surpassing righteousness to get into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what does that kind of righteousness look like? Well, I'll tell you what. Let me give you five super specific, very extended examples of what I mean. After these examples, wait, so I'm supposed to poke my eye out? Is that where we're going here? So I feel like at this point, I would be frustrated because an answer hasn't come yet. And Jesus would be frustrated because I'm not following along the logic train here. But finally, we are coming to an answer. All of this has been building up to this section here. 
And this is the section that he opens with maybe one of the broadest you have heard it statements of all. We've had a number of them before leading up to this, and this one opens with, you have heard it said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, all of these previous, the previous five you have heard statements have been direct quotes from the Law of Moses. Now, this first part, the love your neighbor part, that's all over the Law of Moses. For example, in Leviticus 19, the, the law tells the people you are to love your neighbors as themselves. But the second part of this, the hate your enemy part, that's a little harder to deal with, right? Like how, there is nowhere in scripture where that command is given. So what is Jesus referring to? Well, the common consensus is that Jesus is referring to a cultural norm at the time that said that it was permissible to hate those who hated you. This idea was that God said this was okay. Uh, there are a number of examples of this. Uh, one of them is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is, next slide, which is a library of a group of Jewish people, the Essenes, who lived about 20 miles from Jerusalem around the time of Jesus. So you can, oh, I should have brought my pointer, but you can see Jerusalem up here. <laughs> Jerusalem is right there. <laughs> and the, the end marker there near the Dead Sea is Qumran, the site of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's about a 20 mile straight shot. If you were to go through these files, files, scrolls, the library there, you would find a book called The War of the Sons of Light Against the Sons of Darkness. Next slide. Now, aside from maybe being the most absolute metal name for a book of all time, you read some interesting things in this one. In this book, the command is given to hate all of the sons of darkness and to hate all of the children of the pit, which meant anyone not in this group, anyone not associated with you was your enemy until you were told to hate them. Now there's a lot of other examples of this kind of mindset, but it's safe to say this was the dominant kind of cultural ethos. But where does this come from? Where does this idea, how does this develop to this idea of, well, God says it's okay for me to hate people that hate me. It seems to come about from bad interpretation of what we would call Old Testament passages. One of the one that most scholars point to is passages in Psalms and Amos. There, the command is given to love good and hate evil. And what seems to have happened is that the definition of evil changed. It went from evil with a capital E, what's that noise? Evil with a capital E, this kind of meta-level evil, sin, the evil one, you know, the, this overarching idea of evil, to a much more pragmatic, personal, simple view of evil. It became anyone who opposes me must be evil. Because if I am one of God's elect and someone is against me, that must mean they're against God, so that must mean they're evil. So that's where this idea came from of anyone against me, my enemy, it's okay for me to hate because I'm supposed to hate evil. And so Jesus is coming at this with the idea of, nope, next slide, you are to love your enemies and pray for those who harass you. Oh, that was one slide too far, but that's okay. And this is really hard. 
And it's interesting because this is one of the most oft-quoted scriptures, teachings of Jesus. In a survey, probably about four or five years ago now, uh, a group of non-Christians were asked a simple question. This group was composed of people of different religions, agnostic, atheist, a whole different background. The only thing they had in common was they did not identify as Christian. And they were asked if they knew any quotes or teachings of Jesus. And this one, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you, was the number two answer. So a lot of people know this one. Any guesses on what number one was? Any guesses? Anyone? The golden rule. Yep, that was number one. So, and again, that's even along the, the same ideas. So this is a core fundamental idea of Christianity. I would argue this is, you know, at the absolute center of what it means to follow Jesus, is to love your enemy. And it's something that when it gets specific, when it gets personal, is really, really hard. I think it's one we all struggle with. For example, for me, there's this guy I went to college with. We were in the same Christian fellowship, we did football and basketball together, we were pretty good friends. And then we had a massive blowout. We are talking a rolling on the ground, old school, black eye fist fight. He thought I was being insensitive. I thought he was being a hypocrite. And it got really ugly. And it got so ugly, in fact, that the Christian fellowship we were part of split. It had multiple fractures that happened. Now, I would really, really love to tell you that we made up and we're friends today. I would even love to tell you that, you know, I've, I've moved past it and I pray for him regularly. But I can't. I've tried a couple times. I tried this week while prepping this sermon. You know, I'll get to this passage, I'll go, right, I'm going to try it. I'm, I'm going to do it. And it just devolved into me praying my thoughts onto God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever found that happening where you get praying, you're like, Lord, I asked that you would reveal to them just how stupid they're being. Show them just how much they've wronged me and put on their heart the need to apologize to me. I don't think that's quite what Jesus had in mind, but I feel like, hopefully I'm not the only one that that ends up happening to at times. So this story just, for me, I, I tell this to highlight just how difficult this commandment really is. And I think it's something that we all struggle with, and I would basically almost promise that this is something we're going to struggle with our entire lives. I might even argue this is the most difficult teaching of Jesus. But if we're truly to be children of God, if we are to genuinely be the image of God, it's a teaching we have to follow. Because, as the next passage says, our Father who is in heaven makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good, and sends rain on both the righteous and the unjust. Remember, Jesus is speaking in a location that's a desert, into a desert climate. So water was everything. Water was life. If, it didn't, if the seasonal rains didn't come, your herds died. Your crops died, which meant basically you died. So that's at one level. But then also think of the extra kind of meta thing that's going on of Jesus is the one saying this. 
So not only did God send water, but sent living water in Jesus. And God did that back then and for us now. And God did that when we were still enemies of God. God didn't just write off, write us off when we sin and sin again and again and again. God continues to love us. To love us when we don't listen, to love us when we disobey, to love us when we act like enemies, to love us when we don't deserve to be loved. Next slide. And it's not enough just to be nice to those people that are nice to us, right? The people we like, the people who love us, the people we can get a agree with, the people we get along with, all of, it's not, it's that, that's not good enough to be nice to our friends. Everyone does that. We're called to do more, to take that next step. And that next step comes in verse 48. Here we finally get to the answer, the conclusion of this section Jesus has been talking about, where he says, therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. Now, you may, you may have heard this passage before. It, it might sound weird here. Most translations use a literal translation of the Greek word, which is the verb to be perfect. So you might have heard this before as be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I really like this translation because I think it gets more at the idea or intent of this verse. Because just simply saying, be perfect, that's a little overwhelming, and especially at the conclusion of an argument like this. Because remember, this is the summation, this is the capstone statement of a section not only talking about loving your enemies, but also the larger section of talking about how is the law and Jesus supposed to balance. So ending it by just simply saying, be perfect, feels a little too legalistic, right? Because it, it puts us back into that mindset of, oh, I have to be perfect and follow everything in the law. But striving to be perfect in love or complete in love, which is another, an, another translation of this word to the, the Greek word that's used here means to be perfect or to be complete. So to be complete in love, to strive to reflect that kind of complete love that God has for us, I think is a great summation of this section and the point Jesus is trying to get at here because it brings this entire section back to the idea of love. So when the opening question comes up, how do Jesus and the law interact? We see it comes down to love. What does the righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees look like? It looks like loving everyone, even our enemies, even the people we don't like. It's approaching the law, the interpretation of the law, how we read scripture, how we interact with people with the same question. Am I loving my neighbor? And am I loving my enemy? Lights are going out. <laughs> then honestly, sometimes I think it would be easier for, to poke an eye out rather than to really, really love someone that we don't like, right? 
Like, we hear that, oh, you know, it'd be easier to enter the kingdom of heaven to gouge out your eye. And we're like, oh, oh. Sometimes when you're in the moment of having to show love to someone you hate, you're like, oh, if I could do the eye thing and not have to do this, that might be worth it right now. I know at times when, like, I've thought about this person, this former friend of mine, I might rather cut off my hand than have to, like, go through, like, actually love this person. But that's the challenge. The challenge is to love like God loves. That is one of the things that makes being a follower of Christ so distinctive, is that burden, that call to love those who hate us. And so that's what I want to make our specific challenge this week. I want us to pick one person. So start small. Pick a single person. One person who has wronged you. One person you don't like. An annoying kid in your class. A coworker you really don't like. Whatever it is. One person. I have my person. So when you find, when you think of this person, pray for them once. Just once. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It can be a very simple, short prayer. But it needs to be a prayer of love. A prayer of genuine love. It's going to be hard. That's why we're starting small. One person, one prayer. See how it goes. See how you feel afterwards. Just see how it emotionally hits you. And then we can slowly build from there. But start with just one. A single person, a single prayer. This can be, as a group, our next faithful step on the journey of becoming complete, as God is complete. Join me as we pray. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity you've given us. We just thank you that you are a God who loves us completely, who loves us fully, and who loves us perfectly. And so, Lord, we would just ask that you could put that on our hearts, that you could give us that desire to reflect that kind of love, Lord. We ask that you would, as we attempt this, Lord, strengthen us, go with us, stand with us. Because this is something you've called us to do. And so we just ask for your support and help as we move forward in attempting to do it, Lord. Because it's difficult. And you knew it would be. But you asked us to do it nonetheless. So Lord, I just ask as we go our separate ways, as we go throughout this week, Lord, that you would stand with us, support us, and bring us safely back here next week. In your precious name we pray. Amen.